The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, welcome everyone, brothers and sisters and friends and guests. I'm very glad to see you here this morning. Uh, if you have been with us regularly, you will recall that we are currently on the second of a series where we are working through the book of Genesis thematically. And so let me explain a little bit about what that means since it's different than the usual diet of preaching that we experience here at Foundation. Um, what I am doing is uh, for four weeks here in the spring, so this is the second of four, and then for four more weeks in the fall, I'm going to be taking a, a large narrative section out of the book of Genesis and I'm not necessarily going to be going verse by verse and I'm not necessarily going to be like summarizing the narrative but rather I'm going to be looking in this section of Genesis and we're going to draw out a theme that we find present throughout the rest of Scripture. And so the, the point of this then is to see that God is intentionally writing the Bible as a whole coherent story. So we see these themes introduced way back in the beginning and we see them built and developed and ultimately fulfilled in the rest of Scripture. Okay, and so studying the Bible like this is called biblical theology. Studying the Bible with the view of the whole Bible in mind, trying to let the Bible and the authors of the Bible, both God and the human authors physically, teach us about the grand picture and design, the whole redemptive narrative of Scripture. So last week we looked at the creation story, Genesis 1 and 2. And the main theme that we drew out of that section is garden. We find that God is a gardener. He builds a paradise garden and he puts his image, man and woman, into it to be with him. And we took note last week that you could say that the main theme of all of scripture, if it could be distilled down to one theme, is that God is making a place in which to put his people to be with him. And the Garden of Eden was the first such place. But we also saw that Adam, who represents all of mankind, he is our, our federal head, is what we say, the theological term. He represents all mankind, and in doing so, he sinned. He chose rebellion against God. And likewise, so do we all. And for that, God cast him out of the garden because the garden is a place where God and his people have perfect communion together and Adam's sin prevented that. However, we also saw that as the garden weaves in and out through all of biblical history and the theme returns again and again, always promising that God will restore his garden, we see that finally Jesus comes onto the scene, the Son of God. He is a new Adam. He's better than the old Adam. He doesn't sin. He is the, the new gardener and he brings God's garden back to earth. And he has now invited all of us into God's new garden, which will be completed, perfected, made new and made whole one day as we read in Revelation at the very end of the Bible, at the end of history. God will finally restore his garden in completion and everyone who is in Jesus, in this new Adam, will be there with God. And so that was, <coughs> I think largely, a good story, a positive theme. But we're going to look at the next two chapters of Genesis today and see that there is another side of that coin. In Genesis 3 and 4, we look in more detail about Adam and Eve's sin and the consequences of it. And we find that God, although he builds his garden, his paradise, and although he invites his people into it to be with him, God also has enemies. And so with a story, <clears throat> with a story of scripture follows this beautiful garden, it also, there's another thread running parallel where we see God dealing with his enemies. So let's go to Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to read a section of it and uh, comment. I'm going to make some observations for you to keep in mind as we go forward here. Um, I'm going to skip over some parts because, again, like I mentioned before, what we're doing here is not necessarily reading these narratives and trying to, to summarize them or try to you know, draw out the main point. What we're trying to do is we're trying to, to pull out these themes. And so I'm just going to focus on, on what I've determined to be the, the most helpful for our theme this week. So from Genesis 3. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So we're here after creation. We're in the garden. Adam and Eve are together. They're happy. There's perfect harmony. We see that God is with them. They're together. They're happy. There's perfect harmony. But the serpent is here. So the serpent, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's go back and look at that paragraph again with some detail. Let's look at what the serpent's MO is. How does the serpent operate? What does this serpent like to do? Because what we're going to find as we go through the rest of Scripture, we're going to find that the serpent can create nothing. The serpent can invent nothing. The serpent can only distort and destroy and deceive what God has already made. So let's see how the serpent operates. First, he goes to talk to Eve. Why does he go to Eve? Because he isn't supposed to. See, God has made Adam the head of his family. God has made Adam the guardian of the garden. Any business that the serpent has with mankind, he could address to Adam. That's how God dealt with Adam. That's the correct way to deal with Adam and Eve. But the serpent, knowing this, chooses to speak to Eve instead. What's the serpent's next move? He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, no, God did not say that. What God told Adam is not to eat of the fruit of just this one tree. But the serpent, he asks Eve a question to plant a seed of doubt. He says, did God really say something that God didn't really say? And Eve, she, she knows it's wrong because she tries to correct the serpent. She says, well, well, no, God actually said. But unfortunately, Eve gets it wrong too. And here we might stop and think, you know, oh, Eve, like, what are you doing? There's one rule. It's pretty simple. Just don't eat the fruit of this one tree. And, and you've both now gotten it wrong. Even Paul, in, in 1 Timothy 2, much later in the Bible, he says that, that Eve was the one who was deceived, not Adam. But hang on a second, though. There's more to the story. Because Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 15 that, that death came to all mankind, not through Eve, through Adam. So even though he says, yeah, Eve was the one who was deceived, Paul also says, but, but Adam holds the blame because Adam is still the head. And a couple of verses later here in Genesis 3, we, we get some new information that helps us make a bit more sense of this. See, it says that she, Eve, also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So we get the, the whole picture. Yeah, Eve fumbled this one pretty badly, but Adam was standing right there. Think about the timeline of what happened in the garden. God created Adam, actually outside of the garden, and placed him in the garden. He said, Adam, your job is to take care of this garden and to expand it and to guard it. And, and here's the rule. Here's the one rule. Here's my law. My law is don't eat the fruit of this tree. Then Eve was created. See, Adam received God's law before Eve was created. It was his job to teach his family God's law and to guard them from temptation and evil <clears throat> and to grow them just as he was to grow the garden. God trusted that Adam would clearly and carefully relay the instructions that he received 
to his family. But Adam has already either told it to Eve incorrectly or failed to make sure that Eve did, in fact, understand what God's law was. And if that weren't bad enough, when Eve does fumble the law, he's right there to jump in and set the story straight. Wait, wait a minute. No, that's not right. But no, he shrugs and eats. And so when Paul says then in 1 Timothy that it, you know, it wasn't Adam that was deceived, it was Eve, it's actually an indictment of Adam because Adam wasn't deceived and yet he was right there so he knew better and let it go anyway. But let's continue here in Genesis because just getting the law wrong isn't actually enough to get us there to eating the fruit. I mean, after all, Eve's incorrect <clears throat> recitation of the law made the tree out to be more dangerous than it actually was. God said, don't eat it, and Eve said, don't touch it. So if anything, that should discourage her further from eating the tree. But the serpent is not done yet. See, he, he sows his doubt about God's law, and now he sows his doubt about whether or not God is good and trustworthy. He openly lies now, instead of simply asking leading questions. He says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So let's imagine how this might go. I mean, this is a, this is a really brief summary here in Genesis of, of a complex picture. Eve isn't sure if she has the law right. The serpent has asked her, what was the law? And she hesitates, maybe makes her best guess. It doesn't sound right, but she doesn't have anything else to go on. She looks over to Adam like, is that it? Adam shrugs. He either doesn't know or just decides to let it go. So the serpent says, look, it's nothing. It's nothing. God's law isn't, isn't even good for you. He's trying to keep something from you. And so... You can imagine maybe Eve thinks, oh, well, maybe I'll just, maybe I'll just touch, touch the tree. I, I didn't die. I'm still alive. Well, maybe, maybe God isn't actually then quite so high above me as I thought he was. Maybe this tree is just like all the other trees. Maybe I can write my own laws write my own story about how this is supposed to go. So maybe she takes a tiny nibble of the fruit of the tree. Still not dead. She looks over to Adam. Adam shrugs again. It seems that's all he can do. And they both eat. Look at that. We're not dead. It seems like maybe God's law wasn't binding after all. Maybe, maybe we are equal. To God. Maybe we can do what is right in our own eyes. The reason, the reason I'm, I'm going into this detail is because I, I want to make sure that we understand here. It's easy to read this story, especially like the, like the fairy tale children's Bible version of the story, and have this sort of idea of like Adam and Eve being sort of like clueless children, you know, playing in dad's shed, you know, getting into his paint or something, and then God comes storming down from his throne, what's going on here? And the kids didn't know any better, and he flips out and gives them a punishment that's completely unreasonable and blows up over what's an honest mistake. And especially because we see that the tree is called the knowledge of good and evil, it kind of reinforces that notion. Well, if they didn't have any knowledge of good and evil before they ate the tree, then how could they be held responsible? But, but the Bible is very clear here and elsewhere, if you read it properly, that Adam and Eve are, are entirely capable moral agents that can be held responsible for their choices. And their choices indeed. They did choose sin. They chose rebellion. They knew what they were doing. They knew God's law. They had all of the information that they needed and picked rebellion anyway. For one thing, the command that God gave is very straightforward. They just don't eat the fruit of this tree. That's it. That's the whole, that's the entire sum total. It's the only thing you have to remember. There's one rule. There's not really any room for confusion. So any confusion that's introduced is introduced either by the meddling of the serpent or the complete failure of Adam to teach. It's this one very simple lesson to Eve properly. 
Secondly, God has already demonstrated many, many times here his goodness and trustworthiness. He's made this beautiful garden. He's made the whole world, and he's given it to Adam and Eve. He made a mate for Adam. He made them in perfect harmony. He gave food to them. He walks with them and talks to them. What has the serpent ever done for Eve? Why does she give her trust so easily to this seemingly random snake in the garden instead of to God, who she already has a track record of goodness and trustworthiness with. And it's of course because, not that she didn't know better, but because she clearly did not, in fact, trust God's goodness. And that, that little bit of distrust was all that was needed to open Adam and Eve's hearts then to a desire to usurp God. That little question, well, maybe God isn't isn't all good. Maybe God doesn't have my best interest in mind. Immediately spirals into, what if everything God ever said is not true? What if he isn't above me? What if he didn't make all this? What if he didn't give this to me? What if he doesn't get to make laws? This tiny seed of distrust turns into a raging fire of rebellion. And so Adam and Eve then are left with the choice. Do we, do we go with God, who we know and trust and who has only ever done good things for us, or will I risk it all for a chance to be like God myself? And let's remember too, God already made them in his image. They're already like God in many ways, but it's still not enough because, because I'm made in God's image, but what if there's a little more that he's holding back from me? What if there's like one more thing that's better than this that he's not giving me that I deserve? There might be just a, a tiny bit more happiness or fulfillment or a little bit more power out there for me. And all I have to do to get it is just ignore God's law. So Adam and Eve, <clears throat> they know better. They have all the information they need to know better. They have all of the evidence they need to know that God is trustworthy. And the final nail in the coffin, the proof of this, is that the moment they sin... They are ashamed. The first negative feeling that we see in the Bible, they are embarrassed in front of each other. They cover their nakedness. And then when God comes, they're embarrassed and ashamed before God. See, they, they already maybe knew head knowledge, good and evil. But when the Bible uses this word knowledge, it often uses it in a more expansive sense to mean really experienced. It's often said that a man and his wife will know one another to conceive a child. And so that level of knowledge was, up until this point, absent from Adam and Eve. But when they sinned, now they have felt good and evil, even been good and evil. Let's see God's response. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So we read this passage of Scripture and we often focus on the sin and the curse, and rightly so, but I'm always amazed at the tenderness of God here in this paragraph. He is, from the very beginning, like a father to his children. As if he doesn't know the whole story already, he says, where are you? Not even an accusation. Adam, what, what happened? Where are you? What are you doing? And even as Adam tries to dodge the question, as Adam reveals what he's done without actually admitting to it, God is repeatedly extending his hand as an opportunity for Adam and Eve to confess their sin and repent and return to him. 
He is saying, my children, do you trust your father enough to just own up to what you've done wrong and let me deal with it? But they don't. They've clearly already demonstrated that they don't. And rightly, then, they are afraid and ashamed. And we also see here that God goes to Adam first, as Adam is the head of the family. And Adam blames Eve and kind of blames God. He says, well, the woman that you gave me gave me the fruit. And God turns to Eve, and Eve tries to pass the buck again onto the serpent. Well, the serpent deceived me. And so now, to the three of them, God passes his judgment. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God pronounces a curse, a punishment upon his disobedient creations. Adam and Eve are both cursed directly in relation to their original responsibilities from God. From Adam, work is cursed. Actually, even the ground itself is cursed. So everyone's work is now full of toil. So man or woman, if you have ever felt like your work is working against you, you can thank Adam for that. Eve's work is cursed too, as is her relationship with man. Her role in multiplying and filling the earth is now painful. Still joyful, I hope that any mother can attest, but painful. And just like Adam's curse bites everyone, so does Eve's. For after all, if a wife's relationship with her husband is soured, is the reverse also not certainly true? The serpent is cursed as well, but oddly enough, although the, the serpent's curse <clears throat> is, uh, it, it's, it's, it's seemingly just sort of a, a, a petty punishment. I mean, okay, you get to crawl on the ground. The serpent didn't even have a job. The serpent like, wasn't even part of this story. Maybe there's just nothing there. God is just mad at the serpent. But actually, the serpent's curse contains the first glimmer of hope for the repair, the restoration of God's people with God. It says that one day, one day, the offspring of the woman will come and the offspring of the serpent will strike his heel, not a mortal wound, but the offspring of the woman will strike the serpent's head. God is already here hinting. He's going to make this right. He is going to come back and fix this, and it's hidden within the serpent's curse. So God is setting us up here immediately after the first sin for this great conflict between the woman and the serpent and her offspring and his offspring. But he also shows us already who wins in the end. The last thing that I want you to see here is that God, despite righteously passing judgment and punishment on Adam and Eve, he is still merciful to them. In a way, he is not to the serpent. You see here in verses 20 and 21, right after the curse, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. It's interesting that he calls her that after hearing that she is going to bear the seed that will crush the serpent. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Even still, even in punishment, he is gentle with them. He is merciful. He doesn't destroy them. He merely puts them out of the garden to continue working his plan. He even makes them clothing to wear. 
He sees that they're frail and ashamed, and it's entirely their fault, and they deserve it, and he cares for them anyway. And it's worth noting as well that these skins presumably came at the cost of an animal's life. The first indication that bloodshed is the price for sin. And in order to cover sin, something must die. We're going to move faster through chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel, as it were. Cain, the first son of Adam and Eve, uh, his name means, it says in chapter 4, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It seems like Eve thinks that this might be the promised seed. Perhaps already God has given the one who will crush the serpent. And her next son's name seems like it supports this theory. The word Abel doesn't appear very much in Scripture, except in the book of Ecclesiastes. The most common word in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity. Abel means vanity, an extra luxury, a spare. So we have Cain, the one, and Abel, the other one. But you know what happens. Cain and Abel offer their gifts to the Lord. The Lord sees the heart of Cain and Abel and favors Abel. Cain says, I thought I was the one, and he was the, the other one. But God seems to have decided differently. Cain is enraged with jealousy and kills Abel. And so Cain, like Adam and Eve, is cursed. But Cain, like Adam and Eve, receives a measure of mercy. Cain's curse is that he is sent away to wander the wilderness, but God's mercy is that he promises to protect him. So Eve may have thought that Cain was the promised seed of the woman that God foretold. In 1 John 3, John writes, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. See, Cain was the first seed of the serpent, in fact. And now, let me just take a brief tangent to explain something about the structure of Genesis. Like I said, we're trying to let the Bible here in this series teach us how to read it. So Moses, the author of Genesis, does something right here after the story of Cain and Abel that he does repeatedly throughout Genesis to sort of mark the end of a chapter. So you'll recall that the chapter and verse numbers in your Bible are later editions. They were, they were intended to make it convenient to look things up. You, know, you have like a really long book of the Bible like Genesis, and if you're trying to point to a certain part of it, it's hard to just kind of describe that part. It's easier if there's a little number for us. And, you know, when they added the chapters and verses, they did a good job of breaking it up in a way that makes sense for the most part, but that's, that's not necessarily how the Bible is divided up. So we read the Bible and look for its natural divisions. And so what Moses does here... In the end of chapter 4, he lists a genealogy, sort of a summary of what Cain and his family is up to. And then chapter 5, he lists the genealogy of Seth, Adam and Eve's third son, who we later know to be the, the seed of the woman, God's chosen line. And he gives the genealogy of Seth and says, these are the generations of Seth. So this little phrase and this little structure is the way that Moses breaks up the book of Genesis. He's going to do it again by listing what Ishmael's folk are up to before continuing in Isaac's line, and the same with Esau and Jacob and so forth. So this is a natural point to break. <clears throat> so if we break here then, let us go to our main theme of this week. The seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. Last week, our theme was God's garden. He makes a place, he brings his people to be with him, but this week, we see that there's another side to the beautiful garden story. God has enemies. There are those who hate God and hate his garden, and they are called the seed of the serpent. And right here, from mere moments after the first sin, God has already promised that from the woman will come another seed to crush God's enemies. For in the garden, there can be no enemies. So if the main through line of Scripture is God restoring His garden with His people in it, then the main undercurrent is the chosen people of God against the enemies of God. Let's review first, before we continue into the rest of Scripture, what we, what we know about this serpent seed versus the woman's seed just from these first few chapters of Genesis. 
So first we see the woman and the snake have en enmity between themselves. The woman and the snake are opposed to one another. And the seed comes to settle the battle. The seed of the serpent will again and again and again throughout Scripture try to deceive the woman. And the woman will again and again deceive him right back. We're going to talk a lot more about the theme, in fact, of women in the Bible in the fall series. <clears throat> and the, but uh, <clears throat> but the, the, the serpent versus the woman is another major through line in all of Scripture. When we get to Isaac, and more specifically with his wife Rebecca, we're going to revisit this and spend a lot more time looking specifically at how women are a theme in Scripture in and of themselves. And, and they're also tightly coupled with the theme of water, by the way, as a little teaser for sometime in October when that comes around. And so we're going to come back to these verses again at that time to look at the unique role that women play in redemptive history and the particular ways that God uses them to accomplish His plans. But for now, trying to stay at this top level, we're looking at God's, God's chosen versus His enemies. We can also see from this, this first couple of chapters of Genesis that the heel wound that the serpent seed gives the seed of the woman, that is not meant to be a mortal injury. When two people show up to the ER and one has a heel wound and the other has a head wound, it's clear who needs the attention first. And the head wound is meant to be mortal. So we're promised, yes, that the, the seed of the woman will destroy, defeat the seed of the serpent, but we're also shown that it will come at a cost. And the last thing I'd like you to keep in mind before we continue is that we see already in the story of Cain and Abel that God chooses his people. So Moses, again the author of Genesis, in hindsight, he can clearly see which line is the seed of the woman and which line is the seed of the serpent. But what we see many times in Genesis and in the rest of the Bible is that the people that are alive at the time trying to figure out who should belong to God, they choose using their human intuition and are essentially constantly wrong. They pick the one that's first. They pick the one that's bigger. They pick the one that's stronger. They pick their son that they like better. And they're almost always wrong. See, God chooses the younger over the older. He chooses Abel and then Seth over Cain. And then, when Moses goes to summarize the works of Cain's descendants, he actually, it seems, pays them great honor. The descendants of Cain, the people of Cain, found great cities. They are renowned for their uh, enormous herds of livestock. They are the greatest craftsmen in the land, making tools and, and instruments of metal, and they are fine musicians. They seem to have a great deal of <clears throat> cultural power and cachet. But the line of God's chosen people, instead follows Seth. So God does not choose the firstborn mighty men. God, in fact, often chooses the spare parts. And so we see even already that God's election, God's choice in who His people are, is one, much, much more important and absolute than the choice of man, and two, not in any way related to what seems to be the merit of those who are not chosen. So let's continue to look at this theme of the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman through the rest of Scripture. Let's look at Noah just a few chapters later. Next week, we're, we're going to dive much deeper into the story of Noah, but a flood destroys everyone on earth except for Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives. And so what we see there is that Noah and his wife are a, kind of a restart genetically of the human race. Everyone is descended from Adam and Eve and they have their descendants and then they get narrowed back down to Noah and his wife. And what that tells us already is that the, the line of the woman and the line of the serpent is not genetic. There is no group of people that are descended genetically from the seed of the serpent and then descended genetically from the seed of the woman and one is good and one is bad because the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are both present in Noah and his wife. And you can see that even amongst their sons, again, all genetically related to one another, some are the seed of the serpent and some are the seed of the woman. 
So the seed of the woman does not produce a line of exclusively good guys any more than the seed of the serpent produces a line of exclusively bad guys. We look and continue through the history of God's people and we see the serpent come up over and over and over again as a general metaphor or depiction of the enemies of God. We see in the Exodus, <clears throat> when Moses first comes onto the scene, God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to release the Israelites from slavery. The Pharaoh wore a crown with a serpent that was understood to protect him. And Moses says, God, I don't, I'm not really the guy to deal with Pharaoh. First of all, I'm just some guy, and I'm also kind of small, and I stutter. And God says, throw your staff on the ground. The staff is a symbol of authority. God says, throw your staff on the ground. He does, and the staff turns into a serpent. And God says, pick the serpent up. And Moses picks the serpent up, and it cannot hurt him. It turns back into his staff. God says, the serpent, Pharaoh, cannot hurt you. We continue on through scripture. We can look in 1 Samuel as the people of Israel uh, go to battle, often against the, the people of Canaan, but also often against themselves. Um, but we see in 1 Samuel chapter 5, the Philistines worship a god named Dagon, who is a, a fish god. He's scaly, like a serpent. And Dagon is in his temple, and the statue of Dagon falls over repeatedly, and eventually, the head of Dagon comes off. And that is taken to be a sign that God has defeated him. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 17. David and Goliath. Goliath is described as wearing an armor of scales. And his head is crushed by David, the unlikeliest of warriors. In 1 Samuel 31, we see the death of Saul. He is killed and his body is beheaded. There's contention around this point about exactly where Saul fits into the, the seed of the serpent and seed of the woman narrative. Was, was Saul one of God's chosen people? I mean, obviously God chose to use Saul. Obviously God picked Saul to be Israel's first king, but is God picked to be redeemed? And I don't think it's entirely clear, but this is a good introduction to the concept that the, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman isn't always just a, you know, a, a uniform that certain characters wear, but, but that, that both are present in all men. So Saul, even though he was anointed by God to be king, when God chose for the kingship to move to David, Saul became the enemy of God's chosen. So even though Saul was chosen at one point, when God makes his choice, Saul resists and rebels, and Saul becomes the seed of the serpent, and his head is crushed. We can look in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, there are, are continual allusions to the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. During a, a battle between the Israelites and some of the surrounding peoples, uh, one of the leaders, one of the generals of the opposing army is, uh, is invited into a woman's tent. She says, come in, come sit with me, have a glass of milk. And he falls asleep and she drives a tent stake through his head. Israel is saved by God through a seemingly random woman who sort of just comes into the story out of nowhere and then leaves never to be heard of again. She crushes the serpent's head. And Abimelech, one of the, the worst judges of Israel, uh, perhaps you could even argue a false judge, he, he lays siege to a tower and it is said that a, a woman, given no name, pushes a millstone onto his head and crushes it. And ironically, Abimelech, with his dying breath, asks his armor bearer, he says, I don't want anyone to say that a woman killed me, so please you do it instead. And now Abimelech is remembered for absolutely nothing except for the fact that a woman killed him by crushing his head. We move to the New Testament. 
both John the Baptist and Jesus call the Pharisees, the, the false teachers of the day, sons of the devil. And Satan himself, the serpent himself, makes another appearance to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. <clears throat> you should understand, too, that when, when Jesus calls the Pharisees sons of the devil, he is really kind of spitting in their faces because in this argument, the Pharisees, they say, we are of Abraham. You know, we're part of the chosen people of God. And they're, they're probably thinking, one, like genetically, you know, I, my father and his father and his father, and I can run that all the way back to Abraham. So that's how I know that I'm of Abraham. But also, you know, we're very well behaved. We're very good people. And Jesus says, you think that you're the sons of Abraham. You are the seed of the serpent. You are not even on the right side of this ledger let alone are you exemplary. But Jesus, when he's tempted in the wilderness, it's, it's so interesting to see how Satan comes back again to sort of tempt Jesus in the same way that he tempted Eve. He, he, he knows God's law, he hints at God's law, and he tries to bait Jesus into, into incorrectly interpreting God's law. He tries, to, he tries to lure Jesus into grasping power for himself. He tries to, he says, Jesus, look, I, like, you're... You're, you're so powerful. You're, you're like God. Why are, you, why are you obeying God? Just, just take it for yourself and just be the same as God. It's the same temptation that he gave to Adam and Eve. Jesus, however, he actually knows God's law. Unlike Adam, he actually quotes it back properly and sends the serpent away after three failures. <clears throat> but the big thing that I want you to get from, from this and you know, run through the different parts of the Bible where we see the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman crop back up again. The big thing I want you to get uh, before we go back and look at Jesus in more detail is that the, the, the line of the woman, the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent are not always or often who you think. Right? Let's look at like, who is called righteous in the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's a long list of people that are considered righteous due to their faith. So we've got characters like uh, Noah, who, you know, built the ark, um, and then as soon as he got off the ark and God receded the, the waters, like, he got drunk and passed out in his tent. Not great. We've got Abraham, chosen by God to be the father of a great nation, and Abraham uh, didn't trust God to handle things on his own, so he took matters into his own hand and had a son with his wife's servant first, instead of trusting God. Uh, Abraham's wife Sarah, likewise, laughs at God when he tells her that she is going to bear a child, yet they're all called faithful. Jacob and Joseph, we're going to deal with them in the, in the fall series as well. Um, you know, if, if Jacob and Joseph were starring in a modern HBO TV series, it might be called uh, Gritty and Morally Gray. They're not great. Moses, we've already seen his cowardice. Rahab, a prostitute who yet was faithful and saved God's people in Jericho. And then some judges, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. I mean, Gideon kind of obeyed God, but only after he made God prove himself many, many times. And then after God gave Gideon's enemies into his hand, the power went to his head and he fell right back off the rails. Barak is hilarious because he's actually the, the only one that gets mentioned out of that story of Jael. He was supposed to be the general that would go against Sisera, and God said that he was going to make sure to give Barak victory over Sisera, but Barak was a coward, and he wouldn't go unless uh, one of the Israelite women came with him. And then it turns out he had nothing to do with the defeat of Sisera anyway. And yet, here he is, righteous and faithful. Samson is a walking disaster, and it's if you didn't have this passage in Hebrews 11, you might read Judges and think that Samson was just clearly the seed of the serpent. And yet, here he is in the, the, the hall of heroes, as it were. Hebrews 11, 39 and 40 says, All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So again, why am I talking about all these, these so-called heroes of the faith, and why am I talking about how bad they are? I'm trying to make the point to you, I'm trying to show you the point that the Bible makes to you, 
that God's people, the seed of the woman, did not earn their spots in that list. They were chosen by God, not because of their goodness or their works or their impressiveness, but they were given faith at God's pleasure. Let me list for you now as we move to, to Jesus. Jesus is the, the culmination of every biblical theme you'll find. As we move to Jesus, let me list a few more people that are in the line of the woman. Uh, people like Tamar and Ruth and Bathsheba. Why those names? You may recognize them from Matthew chapter 1 when Jesus' ancestry is given. Now, first of all, they stand out because the ancestry is given in a paternal fashion. So-and-so was the father of such-and-such, who was the father of so-and-so. And these three women are also kind of slid in there. Bathsheba is actually not even named. She's the, the wife of Uriah. And yet here they are. Second, let's also note that these three women, none of them were Israelites. They were all brought in to the people of God, seemingly undeservedly, seemingly against the rules, seemingly at random. And then lastly, we see that, that each one of them served a, a unique role, a necessary role, in carrying on the line of descendants that leads to Jesus, where otherwise, by human means, that line would have been broken. Once again, God shows, the seed of the woman is under my control and my choice, and the seed of the serpent just as much. And so we come then to the birth of Jesus. We have the benefit of hindsight to know that Jesus was the promised one. But up until this point, every, every baby boy that was born in Israel might have been the one, but here, here we have the one. What do we know about Jesus' birth? He was born of a virgin, which means he was born of a woman and not a man. Because sin and death came to all men through Adam. Jesus, absent that curse, born to a woman and God. And let me read to you a, a telling of Jesus' birth that is perhaps not the one that you traditionally hear. It's found in Revelation chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God. If we look back in 1 John 3, where we read about Cain, John continues and he says, the, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So this, this story, this ongoing battle, this perpetual conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the Bible says that to end this conflict, to bring a close to the, the serpent versus the woman, comes the Son of God. And so we see, continuing on in Revelation, going to chapter 20, what is, the, what is the final judgment, the final state of this serpent? When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. 
But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So you see, Jesus comes. He's the, the seed of the woman. He's, he's the seed of the woman, the one that's promised way back in Genesis 3 when God says that the seed of the woman will one day crush the serpent's head. We see Jesus was given for that purpose. And one day, at the end, like we see in Revelation 20, we see that, that the devil and all of his armies, that serpent and all of his seed, array themselves for battle. They challenge God. They say, we're ready for a fight. And God doesn't even waste his time sending his people to handle it. He, he wipes them away with fire from heaven. It's not, a, it's not a battle. It's in fact a trial and execution. And it rings familiar to the flood, in fact, where God simply wipes away the seed of the serpent from the earth. But, but Jesus, where does Jesus fit in here? See, Jesus was, was born of a woman and not of man, like we said. He was born against, out of the jaws of the serpent, but he is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. He is not destroyed by the serpent. The serpent wounds him. And more than that, in fact, on the cross, Jesus dies, which, which seems for a moment like the serpent has won. But we find that after Jesus dies, he returns to life. He is not crushed. His head is not cut off. He is wounded, but now in his return, now that he is alive, he is the one who rules the nations with the rod of iron. He is the one who destroys and completely wipes out the seed of the serpent. And after doing so, it's prophesied in Isaiah that at the end, after that serpent is destroyed finally, the infant will play in the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Jesus, although wounded, yet waits. He waits in heaven for the word from God to come down and finish this fight that started way, way back in the Garden of Eden. And when he crushes the serpent and destroys all of his seed, at that point, the, the harm done to the people of God by the people of Satan will be rendered completely meaningless. The child sticks his hand in the den of snakes. The snakes cannot hurt the people of God anymore. And so like I said last week, a vital and necessary step in a sermon like this is to evaluate what it means for us today, how to, how to apply such a theme to our lives. Because we, we read the Bible and it's, it's a beautiful piece of literature, but if it's, if it's merely that, if we merely read it for interest, we are missing the fact that God has given us the Bible to tell us things. And so, from this theme of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, what can we learn? First, and I think foremost, we see that God will certainly settle the score in the end. And he will, in fact, seemingly not put forth any effort to do so. He will, he will simply wipe away the serpent with fire from heaven. And so from that, we who do trust God, we who are alive in Christ, we who are the seed of the woman, the chosen of God, can have absolute and perfect peace, knowing that in the end, everything does, in fact, get settled up. In the end the evil one is in fact destroyed. But let us also remember that God's chosen, those who are the beneficiaries of God's victory, are not chosen 
based on their merit or birth order or good works or otherwise impressive deeds. I hope that that's clear from the many, many places in the Bible where those who are clearly called out as God's chosen people, the seed of the woman, are a mess. Some of them are an absolute disaster. And so I would then pause here to urge you, if you do see yourself as a mess or a disaster, repent of your sins. If God chooses you, your sins do not stand in His way. If God has chosen you to be His people, your frailty, your moral weaknesses, your uh, low birth order, your lack of good works, your lack of impressive deeds, your lack of anything does not in any way prevent God from choosing you. And so he says to us in Romans 5, he says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So if you are not in Christ today, Please hear me. You are the seed of the serpent. And understand what God has said will happen to the seed of the serpent applies to you. And yet, regardless of how much you think you have to bring to the table, God also offers a way to become the seed of the woman. Jesus died to pay the penalty for the sins that you have committed. And he rose from the dead to demonstrate his victory over death and over the serpent. Victory that he will grant to you. Ask God to give you faith and to believe in Jesus. And then by his wounds, you can be healed. If you are a Christian today, brothers and sisters, then remember that you are, you are the seed of the woman. You don't have the potential to be, nor can you act good enough to achieve. In fact, you are chosen by God, the seed of the woman. And we return again to Revelation. We see that the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accusers of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. See that during this time, after Jesus has returned to life, but before Jesus has crushed the serpent, the serpent is here. And he is angry because he knows his time is short. So just as the people of God, just as the seed of the woman throughout the history of the Bible have been seen again and again to be oppressed and put down and nearly destroyed, wounded, but not quite killed, so also should you expect these things. But blessedly, we are no longer awaiting the seed of the woman to come and free us. The waiting is over. That work has been completed. So we now, we who are in Christ, are now carrying on the seed of the woman. And it is therefore up to us to do battle against the seed of the serpent. And so I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, Peter is speaking to Christians who are suffering. They feel the weight of the seed of the serpent pressing down on them. They feel the wounds. And let's see what Peter says for us today. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Brothers and sisters, don't be like Eve. Don't wonder if God has something else that he's holding back from you if you would just go your own way. Humble yourselves. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Brothers and sisters, again, the seed of the serpent is here and everywhere, but the seed of the woman in Jesus is also here and everywhere to the ends of the earth. You are not alone 
and we are not waiting anymore. And so after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you that in spite of our sin and in spite of our following after the serpent, in spite of our attempt to usurp you and your role, thank you that you have given us a promise. Given us a promise that your enemies will one day be crushed. And thank you, God, for choosing us, those of us who are in Christ. Thank you for choosing us to be part of that promised line and not part of the seed of the serpent. Thank you for saving us, for sparing us, and for your mercy. Lord God, keep us faithful. Keep us to trust you, not like our first father and mother did, but like, like the new Adam did, trusting you even unto death, knowing that we are no longer awaiting the seed of the woman to appear, but that he is Jesus. And we are now awaiting him to come and one last time finally crush the serpent. God, please bring that day to us quickly. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no-derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Go in peace. Snow.